Hey, everyone, we are four weeks away from our celebratory 200th episode, and we want to hear from you. Please send us in a comment or a question, an audio recording of a comment or a question, and we'll enter you into a book bundle giveaway drawing. We've got five different book bundles with four different participating publishers, Baylor University Press, Zondervan, Erdman's, and Baker. Send us in a recording to our email address at the two cities podcast at gmail.com and do so by November 1st. So we have enough time to incorporate it into our episode and you have an opportunity to win some amazing books. All right. And here's our episode. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 196. In this episode, we're talking about the Christian invention of the Jewish executioners of Jesus with Dr. J. Christopher Edwards. Dr. J. Christopher Edwards is professor of religious studies at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York, and he's the author of the book that I'm excited to talk about in this episode, Crucified, The Christian Invention of the Jewish Executioners of Jesus, published by Fortress Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this conversation with Dr. J. Christopher Edwards, uh, he and I have a a great conversation. There's a lot of banter and a bit of debate uh, about um, this this topic of the Christian invention of the Jewish executioners of Jesus. It's a difficult topic. It's one that, as you will see, it's one that we lament um, as as we both agree that the development of this tradition is just entirely uh, wrongheaded and and misguided. Uh, and and the discussion in in Dr. Edwards' book is about how he sees elements of this present in the New Testament. So we do have a bit of a debate on that front, um, but it's an important it's an important book, and it's one that does um, uh, highlight uh, again a lament a lamentable feature of early Christian history. And so um, it's a tough topic and an important one as well. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook, X, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. J. Christopher Edwards. Well, Dr. Edwards, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, John. Thank you so much for having me. Your name is about as generic as mine. Yeah. <laughs> well, your name is John Edwards and my name is John Dunn. We both That's have we both we both share names with very famous people. I write um, as J. Christopher Edwards. You write as J name? you write as J. Christopher for disambiguation, and I write as John Anthony for disambiguation. <laughs> there so we're, you go. we're we're similarly, you know, playing the game. One of my friends actually, um, because I've been, you know, I feel very sleazy about this. Um, because my first two books were research books. Um, and then this is my first trade book. And when you write a trade book, you have to feel a little sleazy because especially if it was a false, a small press like Fortress, because you have to self-promote. Mm. So I like everyone I know. The first review on Amazon, you can tell it's from like Daryl Edwards, who was like my dad. You know, <laughs> it's like you gotta you really have to try and sell it. So of course, I was like telling my friend uh who's in Philadelphia today. Of course, I'm just telling everyone I know about the book or whatever. Um, and he was like, why do you write as J. Christopher Edwards? And then I sent him a picture of John Edwards, you know, the guy that could have been president. Uh, John <laughs> Edward, the guy who talks to the dead on the show Crossing Over. 
and Jonathan Edwards, the, the theologian. I was like, that is why I write as J. Christopher Edwards. I mean, when I first published my first article, I, I way back a long time ago, I remember thinking that like I could be president one day, and I was like, I cannot. <laughs> be named Donald Trump, you know, this is not <laughs> going to work. <laughs> so Jay Christopher Edwards is where I start that, and that's well, what I roll. This is great. This is great. So I'm really excited to talk about your new book, Crucified, uh, with you. Uh, so we we met last year uh, at SNTS in, uh, in Belgium. Um, and, yes, uh, a lot of good beer there. Lot, of course, lots of great beer. And um, uh, you were giving a presentation on kind of the depictions of uh, the executioners of Jesus as being as being Jewish there, and I forget your title, but it was something very like jarring. So uh, the Jews killed Jesus. I think that's what it was. In quotes, of course. Yeah, of yes. course, in quotes. Yes, and it was very it was very jarring. But but at the time, I was wrapping up an article um, on the passion narratives and their reception, and specifically, you know, the the idea of. Um, Jesus receiving mixed wine and sour wine um, on the cross, uh, and 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 at just part of the broader passion narrative, because even even before he's crucified in Matthew and Mark, he receives this some kind of mixed wine, and, and I just got that uh, um, article accepted with JBL, thankfully. Um, oh, congratulations! That's yeah. that's, that's a big fish. Do you know how many articles I've tried to get accepted with JBL unsuccessfully? No, I don't know. I'm not more than I'm going to admit on the podcast. Um, well, congratulations, man. That is that is great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But 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 when I saw the SNTS program and I saw your um your paper because I had just like finished basically working on on my, on, on this article, I was like, you know, I hadn't sent it off yet, but I was like, oh man, I I have to go check out this paper. So it was um it was great to hear uh, your work and to meet you there, and of course to hang out um uh, in in Leuven, which is a lovely European uh, city. But um let's let's talk about let's talk about this book, um which of course is a um you know it covers a very difficult topic. It's not an easy one to um to swallow. It uh it, it's a really kind of problematic uh a uh, subject in 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 general and you you've uh, written well about it and um uh written compellingly about it and uh want to kind of just get into it can you tell us what is the thesis of your book kind of in a overview or in a nutshell um sure yeah i mean i think it's a jarring topic kind of like slavery is a jarring topic yeah you know it's like you see whatever like you read in like the hebrew bible god telling the israelites you know that they can kind of keep the women that they've captured and you're like god's saying that you know and you're like oh that's not quite right you know <laughs> um, it's like i think it's like on 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 that level it's just that people don't don't know about it so much so my book is on the um claim uh, made by early Christians that the people who executed Jesus are um, are Jewish, okay? And that is a is something that no one is going to be aware of. And the reason that no one's going to be aware of it is because when someone when you close your eyes, everybody who's listening to this, close your eyes right now. Except and, if you're driving. Except if you're yes, driving. Yes. Except if you're driving. Please, please keep your eyes open. Um, <laughs> but uh, close your. I don't know. Mental, I don't know, whatever. Okay, imagine in your uh, imagine um, you're there at the um, Gol Golgotha, and you're seeing Jesus um, crucified. And who do you see nailing him to the cross? 
and you probably see um some guys with i don't know a metal helmet and like some red crest on it and maybe like a red cape and a breastplate and maybe you know right because because we've all seen a jesus movie right we've seen the passion of christ the christ we've seen jesus of nazareth we've even seen life of brian <laughs> right we've seen all of those movies and, and in those movies um jesus is um executed by by roman soldiers and that's certain please that is certainly what happened to jesus of nazareth that mm -hmm. is definitely what jesus of nazareth was executed by roman soldiers presumably for political crimes against the Roman state, okay? Um, and that is the story about what happens to Jesus in the or earliest gospel, which is the gospel of Mark, um, and the gospel of Matthew, um, the second gospel, I think. Um, although in both of those gospels, you can see that the writers are subtly moving away from that, because they both, of course, accuse Jews of killing the prophets. They say to the Jewish leaders, you killed the prophets, but then they say, and the Roman soldiers killed Jesus. So there's a little bit of like a contradiction there. Um, and that gets ironed out as we move later on. So in that tunnel period that we can't really see too much into between whatever Jesus's death and the writing of our earliest gospels, whatever, 40 to 60 years after the death of Jesus, something happens where um, early Christians begin to change the identity of Jesus's um, executioners. So that Jesus is executed not by Roman soldiers, but by um, Jews. And um, it kind of makes sense if you think about why that happens. If you put on your um, early Christian hat, it couldn't have been advantageous to claim that your um, whatever, your the founder of your religious movement was executed by state actors for political crimes against the state. Right. So you need to be able to blame um, someone else. Right. And of course, all of our gospels are written in the context of the um, uh, the Jewish war, second Jewish war against uh, or excuse me, the Jewish war against Rome in which Jerusalem's destroyed, et cetera. We all know about that. Um, so they they blame this rebellious sort of people who they've been in conflict with, you know, for the past several decades. Um, and Luke's gospel is really the first, the first one to where if you read through Luke um, carefully, especially Luke 23, uh, and you read verses Luke 23, 13 through 33, I believe it is, and you just trace um, in Luke 13, uh, 23, 33, it says that they crucified Jesus. If you just trace, they crucified Jesus. And if you just trace back the antecedent of who they is, you find out that it is the people in Luke 23, 13, who are the Jewish leaders and the people or whatever. Um, so, so that's there. And then, you know, you have a mixed audience in the Gospel of John uh, or mixed um, accusation in the Gospel of John. Um, in John, I think it's 20. I don't really remember off the top of my head, but if you just read John 20, 19 or 20, and when it talks about who crucified Jesus, it seems that the Jews crucified him. Of course, elsewhere in John, it says that Roman soldiers crucified Jesus, and that's probably like the mangling of, of two traditions together. Um, and then if you just go out into the second century, I'm not going to like bore you with the weeds for all these texts, but if you go out into the second century, third century, fourth century, Roman soldiers just completely disappear from the scene. It's only Jews all the time, everywhere. Epistle of Barnabas, Justin Martyr, 
um, Melito of Sardis, Irenaeus, Origen, whatever. You go on out there, it's only Jews who are executing Jesus and who are persecuting, who are torturing Jesus prior to his execution. There are no Jews in the picture, right? I mean, what I no did. Soldiers, I, you mean? No, no or, soldiers. Sorry, soldiers. Yes, there are no soldiers in the picture. Thank you very much. What I did, honestly, if I just kind of sum up what I just said to you, is I didn't actually work. I mean, most people who study New Testament, especially in like um, faith settings, work from what they think is like the historical event towards the Gospels, right? And they say, how do the Gospels reflect what's happening in the historical event? Okay, I like just sort of ignore that. I'm just ignoring the historical event. I'm saying that out here in the second century, it's only Jews who execute Jesus, okay? Um, and that is, you know, if you go 100, 150 years after Jesus's execution, you can't find a Roman soldier executing Jesus, right? In all of the retellings of the crucifixion narrative. And I'm saying, is our, our, our canonical, how much are our canonical texts part of what's happening there in the second century? Mm -hmm. It kind of makes sense even that Luke's gospel is, is the first one that explicitly says that Roman soldiers um, execute Jesus because, and of course, Luke is strongly suspected of himself coming from the second century using Josephus, um, this sort of thing, you know, um, yeah, you mean you mean that it, it makes sense to you that Luke would be the first one to um, have Jews execute Jesus rather than the Roman soldiers? Yes, yes, that's right. Right, right. Yeah. No, I I, I want to chat about the uh, the Luke uh, sequence, um, but but before that, I just want to say, um, you know, I I completely agree about the the development of these traditions. That um, I mean, I mean, it's it's inarguable, right? The development of these traditions go in that direction. It's very clear from all of these texts that, um, uh, unfortunately, Jews are consistently depicted as being responsible and culpable for all of the elements of the passion. You know, my the research that I did, which is what you know uh, attracted me to come to your your paper um, last summer, uh, was was more narrowly focused on the mixed and sour wine, and that's the trajectory that you see there. It's 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 um, the Jews as as they're referred to in these texts as the ones who are the ones who are giving Jesus this sour wine, and it's and it's not to help him or to alleviate thirst or anything, but it's specifically in in mockery, which yep. I I find to be um inconsistent with actually the gospel presentation because it's not clear who's giving it to Jesus and it's also not clear what their motivations are it's at least ambiguous but what seems to happen is over time it just becomes uh, a kind of um evil ac action and it's mm. and it's attributed to the Jewish people and it's uh sort of unfortunate I feel like there's a little bit more in Luke's gospel is there more in, in Luke's Well gospel? the soldiers do it mockingly it's very obvious yes the motivation of of the sour wine incident is very obvious in Luke it's the soldiers who do it and they do it mockingly in verse mm. 36 of chapter 23 mm. um but that's a good segue now to talk about the sequence in Luke okay. so so I um I Definitely agree with you that um, if you read through chapter 23 carefully, you will notice that the soldiers aren't explicitly referenced where you would expect them to be. Um, like like in verse 26, where where uh, it says that they seized or, or snatched or whatever uh, Simon, uh, you know, to, to to carry the cross. It, it, we're not told who's doing that. Right. Um, we assume the soldiers because of. Um, uh, Matthew. Why do you assume the soldiers? 
Well, sorry, I mean because of our familiarity with the passion, perhaps, oh, right. like as reader, as modern readers, right? We would assume right. the soldiers. Um, and and so I agree with you that it seems at the very least that Luke hasn't been one way you could say it is maybe he hasn't been careful with his sources and that in the editing process, he hasn't clarified who's doing these actions. But the soldiers do appear. So like the mockery in verse 36 uh, the centurion and in, in, you didn't in, tell me you were referencing the Bible. <laughs> don't no. don't worry. No, no, no. You don't, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. It's, it's all good. You're. I'm. I'm agreeing with you that. Okay. That good. It, yes. Well, I'm. Well. Well, I'm. It's my fault. I should have had this out. No. No. no I'm. I'm. I'm giving a nuanced agreement. What. What. Please, what I'm. Please. What I'm. What I. What I'm agreeing to, is that you're absolutely right that there is no. Um, a clear reference to the soldiers until verse 36 when they're mocking or the centurion in verse uh, 47 or the the fact that the soldiers have Jesus's body in um, verse uh, 52. Um, but what, what you don't have is reference to the soldiers prior to that when those other things are happening. So well, the soldiers prior to that, prior to verse 36 are the soldiers that are with the Sanhedrin, right? Yeah. So, so what, what I'm, what I'm getting at is I, I think that um, you're right to point out the lack of explicit reference. And I think that that the way I would view it is that's an unfortunate, uh, like, um, I don't know if you want to say neglect or something or editorial activity or something like maybe relevance theory is operative here where, of course, Luke, I, I would I would want to say Luke is imagining the soldiers, but doesn't explicitly reference them. That That's how I would want to say it. I, I know that for the for your thesis you know of course you've you've uh sort of charted this in a different direction yes um, i think i would like to say that you would like to imagine the soldiers rather than <laughs> well like well i I do, I do i do imagine the soldiers like i said they are there eventually they are the ones who executed jesus i agree with you i don't <laughs> think that luke wants to present it that way though okay okay and i think we can we can we can at least disagree on that part um uh but well, but but that doesn't neglect anything that you've said about where this is headed, right? The trajectory of this is clear. Um, and I so you're saying so in, on you. your reading, I just want to understand yeah. what you're saying. On your yeah. reading, that in the second century, only Jews execute Jesus, but all the texts in the New Testament are like immune from that. Well, I would say that the, you know early Christians, um, in light of the polemical sort of, we might talk about the parting of the ways or something like that. I would say that this wedge just gets leveraged and leveraged and leveraged so that um, it it just becomes more and more about you know uh, vilifying uh, the the Jews and mm -hmm. and and um, I'm not discounting what what yeah. you're saying because I, I what, what I'm what I'm what I'm saying is I can totally see how Luke would be read the way that you are arguing it is. Well, is let me, I, given that your, your, your reading will be the default for most of our listeners. <laughs> let me just sort of present the, the, the other side. Okay. First yes. Go all, for let it. me just say like a little bit of anger that I think we can both share about the NIV translation. Oh I yes. Or um, Dr. Father Tom Wright doesn't like the NIV. I've heard him say several disparaging things about it. I also, uh, some of my uh, colleagues are uh, NIV translators. Oh dear, so, they need yeah. to update that. So, um, uh, yeah, so I remember when I was teaching class, because I, you know, you, I try to work my research into my class. So in one class I that I teach in Intro to New Testament, I was showing my students how this idea develops um, that, you know, early Christians start to accuse Jews of executing Jesus. 
Um, and I was saying when this starts in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. So I think I already had the one I usually use. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it, Aramis or something like that when I show text hmm. in class because it doesn't have like, you know, um, what's the word like ad advertisements on the side if you want to show the hmm. text of the Bible. Hmm. So I just pulled up a quick reference to like, uh, you know, Luke 23 and I pulled up got Bible Gateway, which I guess defaults to the NIV. And I was like, I was like, look what it says here in Luke 23. And it was just like the soldiers executed Jesus. And yeah. I was like, wait a second. I was like, yeah. no, no, this isn't right. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the NIV, you know, just translates the um, assumed pronoun in the verbs um, somewhere, somewhere between Luke 23, 13 and 36. I don't, I don't know which first they swap over from they to just soldiers, but it's, it's in there somewhere. Um, and they do that without any warrant whatsoever, yeah. you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, you're, you're totally, you're totally right to point that out. Like you're, you know, like you're totally right to point that out. The, 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 the antecedent, if we keep going back is exactly as you describe, I guess what I'm sort of saying is I think that it's implied or, or that, that Luke has not used his sources in a way that clearly delineates, you know, who's doing it. That, oh, that's John. all, I, that's all oh, I would John. say. But here's oh, the John. But, but, what? Now, wait, can I, can I make my pitch? Please go ahead. Let me make my pitch. Okay. So if you, uh, all right. So if you think about the message of Luke Acts, if you read Acts one through 10, right, Mm. what's the major preaching of Peter to the people in Jerusalem? You executed Jesus. You crucified Jesus. He says it like seven or eight times, right? So whose reading does that go with? All right. Now, just let me avoid that. That's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Okay. All right. Also, when you get them on the road to Emmaus, right? Mm. Um, in Luke 24, when they're telling the resurrected Jesus about what's happened, they say, they say the our chief priests and leaders, they crucified Jesus, just like mm. flat out. That's what mm-hmm. they say. Mm-hmm. They crucified Jesus. Um, and if you think about like Stephen, right? Mm. Who executes Stephen? It's um Jewish characters, right? And the author of luke acts is bending over backwards to make stephen's death the same as jesus's oh death, i agree right? with that yeah they're yeah. both seeing the son of man they're both telling people to forgive the people who are crucified who are killing them and who kills stephen and that's the that's the final parallel the killers of stephen and jesus are also the same and luke 23 just spells it out so listen i respect what you're saying you're reading <laughs> i think that the, that my reading coheres with the larger message of of Luke Acts much easier. But listen, you you the devil's in the details, which we're not going to talk about. I think on this <laughs> podcast, and I can only encourage your listeners to please uh, buy the book so I can buy a cup of coffee. Oh, okay. brilliant! Okay, well yes. we'll we'll let we'll let we'll let uh, listeners dig into those details. But how about how about we shift to a text that's uh, inarguable? Um, first Thessalonians two. So here here we have a text in the new Testament. Uh, there is of course discussion about whether it's an interpolation or not. And you have some discussion on that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about at least how you approach the text in, in the book? Yes. I mean, I put it, I sequester it to an excursus because I think, I do think it is, um, an interpolation, um, I wasn't actually prepared to talk about this one. You've thrown me a curveball because it's in uh, an excursus. Um, let's see. First Thessalonians 2. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, there's first Thessalonians 2. What is it? 13 through yeah, like 14 to 16. 
14 to 14 to 16. That's right. So um, in 14, you have um, the author claiming that the um, the Udaioi have killed both. Well, in verse 15, killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Um, and that plays into this kind of something we haven't talked about yet, which is another thing that early Christians insist on, which is that Jesus isn't just executed by a handful of malevolent Jews around the year 30 CE in Jerusalem, but that they are guilty. Of, you know, it's like the same Jews who killed Jesus, killed the prophets mm. and are whatever currently opposing whatever Christian community that the author is part of, you know, so you have this like idea of a, of a mono, uh, like of a timeless Jew, right. Who always is opposing the Christian community who, which represents Jesus because they killed Jesus and the prophets and, whoever else. Um, so that's in verse uh, 15. Uh, and then in verse 16, it says they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. Um, and I take that bit in verse 16, the reference to God's wrath overtaking them at last as a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. Um, and assuming that Paul dies before that, Okay, yeah. the, then uh, this section of 1 Thessalonians wouldn't have been written by Paul. This would be something we would call an interpolation. Right. And because 1 Thessalonians is often regarded as Paul's first letter, or at least one of his earliest yes. letters as well. That, that, that's, actually, that's, that's actually a great point that reinforces what I want to say. Yes. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, John. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting uh, text, and, and it's one that... Um, yeah, so in your view, it's added later. Um, Just for a few of your listeners, I mean, yeah. there are books on interpolations in Paul, mm -hmm. but if you asked, you know, anyone who studies New Testament about interpolations in Paul, um, there's really only two that I think everyone would say, not everyone is going to agree that they're an interpolation or yeah. not, but I think everyone would agree that these texts are commonly questioned as interpolations, and one would be 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, and the other one would be in 1 Corinthians 14. Right. I don't know. The, you would know this. I don't Yeah, yeah 30, 33b to 35. Yeah, so I think th th those are the two texts that, listen, I mean— you know, it, it it can go. You know, it can go either way. I tend to think that the that that there's a tradition here that's all bound together in 14 through 16. Mm. Um, and if 16 is a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, as you know, I get. I don't really see what else it could be. Um, then I think all of 14 through 16 has to be um, an interpolation. So, and it's worth remembering that our you know our earliest texts of Paul. Um, our earliest references to any part of this verse come at least 150 years after it's being mm -hmm. written. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's not like it's being passed along in a pristine manner um, during that period. And that's precisely the period in which this accusation that Jews executed Jesus is growing and developing. So, I mean, it would make sense. I'm not like wedded to the idea. I mean, if it's not an interpolation, that just means that the claim that Jews executed Jesus is like way earlier, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I, th I, th I think it is. It would have helped me if it wasn't. But I, I, I think it is. Sure. Yeah. 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 So um, John Dominic Crossan, uh, he wrote a book in the '90s called "Who Killed Jesus," and it's it's yes. it's basically about this kind of anti-Semitic uh, uh, tradition um, that that we're we're chatting about here. Um, and he really focuses on uh, the Gospel of Peter. Um, and I'm yes. wondering, I'm wondering if we could talk uh, a little bit about some of those second century 
or later texts that that provides some of the kind of like uh, details for what you're what you're getting at, whether it's Gospel of Peter or maybe the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, since you're an expert on uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. Yeah. I was just telling um, John prior to the podcast that I've written the shortest book that Morris Seebeck has ever published on the Epistle <laughs> of Barnabas. I'm very economical in my writing style, and any readers of uh, my book will find that it's just like, listen, this guy doesn't have extra sentences that don't move things along. <laughs> so Very efficient. Yes, yes. Very, very, very efficient writing. Um, yeah, we can talk about uh, some of the stuff in the second century. So the Gospel of Peter is definitely, I mean, maybe... I don't think that there is a cross gospel or some core early oh, right. tradition yeah. in the yeah. gospel of Peter, like um, uh, Professor Crossan would say, although I think Professor Crossan is a very brilliant and inventive person. You know, I, I side with Paul Foster, I guess, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that it's um, second century. I, I think most other people would say that. I mean, I don't know if you yeah. know most much about that, but mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, so like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, right, once we get to the second century, like it's, you know, outside of like Josephus and Mm -hmm. Tacitus, it's like really hard to find a mention of Jesus being executed by um, Roman soldiers. It's pretty much all Jews. So in the gospel of Peter, and you'll be familiar with this from your own work on the, um, the, the um, mixed wine and sour wine. Yes. Thank you. I mean, you know, well, the gospel of Peter is, is itself, um, you know, the te- we only have one copy of the Gospel of Peter, and it's just a partial, it's a very fragmented text. Um, and um, uh, in that fragmented text, um, we have Herod, not Pilate, being in charge of what happening happens to Jesus. Um, and Herod hands Jesus over to uh, the Jewish crowds there. Um, and when Jesus handed over to them, they do things that in Mark and Matthew soldiers do to Jesus. So they cast Jews cast lots for Jesus's clothes. Jews put a crown of thorns on him. Jews clothe him with purple. Right. Um, and then Jews um, execute Jesus in the gospel of Peter. And they of course give him um, mixed wine to drink. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the sort of tor- pre crucifixion tortures that in Mark and Matthew, you might associate with Roman soldiers in the Gospel of Peter. It's it's Jewish actors who who mm-hmm. do those things. Um, you also have in uh, Gospel of Peter, right, because of that lack of uh, Pilate, uh, they refuse to wash their hands, which is an interesting uh, sort of uh, statement. That's right. So you have Pilate being able to sort of wash away the guilt, um, but but not the but not the Jews. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's the, those are the opening lines. Is that right? Off the, I, I think I think it's I, yeah. I think that's where it begins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Epistle of Barnabas. This is actually one that kind of like put me on to the text or to this mm. sort of thing. Yep. Right. Um, initially, I did I did a book on the Epistle of Barnabas, um, basically because I like needed a ten year project. Mm-hmm. Um, Barnabas, there's only, um, Greek and Latin manuscripts of Barnabas, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a real kind of like, okay, that's what I should do. I don't know what else it's about, but I can work in these languages, you know? Um, and you know, there's not like a ton written on the epistle of Barnabas, but if you read through Barnabas, one of the things that strikes you is how, you know, Barnabas says that, um, this is pretty much the same things gospel of Peter says, Jews will cast lots for his garments, blah, 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 this sort of thing. Um, Barnabas also has that generational continuity. Um, he thinks that the same, he basically thinks that 
the Jews who disobeyed God at Sinai are the same as the Jews who execute Jesus, mm. are the same as the ones who will one day see him at his second coming, right? It's just they don't um, – these authors, they just think that all Jews for all time are guilty of Jesus' crucifixion. That Jews actually – so two things. One, Jews, not Roman soldiers, actually executed Jesus. And then two, all Jews for all time are kind of guilty of that. Okay. Um, and Barnabas, you know, he mixes in a, a, a bit that becomes kind of standard. And Barnabas is the first representative of this that um, Barnabas discovers that Jews did these things because Barnabas believes that um, they were prophesied to do that. Barnabas mm -hmm. says in Barnabas uh, 5 2, I believe, he says, God says that the wounds of his flesh came from them. God says mm -hmm. that the wounds of his flesh came from them. And then he quotes Zechariah and Psalms and I'd say, and all these other sort of texts to show that um, it was predicted in the scriptures. You know, he knows Jews executed Jesus because it was predicted in the scriptures and the text he cites, sometimes he's the only witness to these scriptures. So you got a feeling that he's kind of like, you know, either finding uh, variant readings that he likes, or he's changing the readings just to show that, you know, to have the scriptures say what he wants them to say, which is that Jews, you know, God said Jews would execute Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think that's how like lots of like um, details of the passion were created. Like if you think about, so for example, like when Jesus is on the cross, I mean, it's what I tell my students, you know, like what, what, are, what does Jesus say from the cross? And then they say like, you know, all these, all these things, you know, <laughs> whatever, forgive, you know, forgive them. They don't want to do all this or this. Or, and I'm really trying to get them to say, oh um, my God, my God, my God, my God, my, yeah. why have you forsaken me? Yes. I'm like, yeah. finally, we get it. We get yeah. to that. Um, you know, but I, you know, I tell my students, it's not like someone was like there at the crucifixion saying, you know, like, what did he say? You know, like somebody write that down or whatever, you know, and then like, it like gets changed into, you know, um, uh, it gets picked up into whatever the community that, or, or the, or the, it gets passed along for a couple of decades and gets like lifted up into our canonical gospels. I'm like, no, that's not what much more likely has happened is that early Christians believe that. Jesus is the Messiah who was executed, um, and they think that God must have told them that that was going to happen. They just, you know, kind of missed it. This executed Messiah—that's a strange idea. So they're like, "Well, God, you know, must have like told us this that this was going to happen beforehand. We just kind of missed it." So they start searching the scriptures and they find texts like Psalm twenty-two, you know, which in Psalm twenty-two you have, you know, the opening verses or Psalm twenty-one, Septuagint. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You also have the casting of lots in Psalm 22. They cast lots for my garments. So they find these texts and they say like, oh, this must be about, you know, here we have a righteous person who's suffering. You know, this must be God saying what was going to happen to Jesus. So it's not like that they like have remembered that Jesus said something like this. They've read this text. They said, this must be about Jesus. So this must have been what he said on the cross. And so they then put that, they use that in their construction of the narrative, him saying that on the cross, people casting lots for Jesus's garment. And what the epistle of Barnabas does is he just extends that practice to the detail that Jews executed Jesus. So he takes that practice of finding the details of Jesus's passion in the prophets. Um, and um, he just takes this new fact he thinks he has that Jews executed Jesus and he finds that in the prophets, right? Mm -hmm. 
um like in zechariah he says uh what is i, I forget you've probably you're probably more familiar with them with my book than i am um he says when they when they kill but, their own shepherd or something like that mm -hmm. you know um you know yeah, strike uh, the shepherd when they strike yeah 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 um he has it make it so that the, when the jews kill their own shepherd or whatever um it's different than whatever's in matthew or whatever's in justin he sort of like altered the text to say like oh look the scriptures predicted that um jews would execute jesus mm -hmm. yeah well this this sort of like um use and manipulation of uh antecedent text the uh, the psalms in particular prophetic texts whatever uh is certainly something that i i think is uh in in um early christianity like uh that i mean that really is kind of the heart of the sour wine and mixed wine article for me is is sort of how in my view the gospels don't really allude to um psalm 69 which is where you get a reference to vinegar or sour wine uh and gall they don't really allude to it so clearly and maybe maybe matthew does you know more obviously than mark and maybe uh john does um a, a, a little bit uh as as well but as a whole you don't really get loads of like real obvious sort of uh connection perhaps uh, at least you you might get some sense that they were aware of the verse, but maybe not so much the context. And yet, in subsequent tradition, especially because the details are so convoluted, really hard hard to keep it all straight, um, it does kind of get conflated into this single offering of sour wine mixed with gall, even though sour wine is not mixed with anything in the Gospels, and gall is only mentioned by Matthew. So Psalm sixty nine mm -hmm. is doing a lot of work there, and they you know they leverage the context all the curses and imprecations that the psalmist declares against uh the people who are offering him sour wine and gall uh are 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 leveraged and applied to the Jewish people for offering sour wine and gall again even though it's it's the soldiers like in Luke for example right so all this stuff i do see taking place uh in second century and beyond um where where you just have this like leveraging of these texts in some really gnarly unfortunate ways um and i think there's just uh yeah and it be just becomes a consistent feature the text is is consistently uh, uh or just sort of treated that way um but an another element of this that i'd love to talk about is the rehabilitation of Pilate within oh, christian yeah. within, within christian imagination um absolutely could you tell us a little bit about that yes i can I just wanted to follow up with you about something in Luke, but I can't, I can't, I'll talk to you about it later. Um, never mind. Um, yes, I'm so sorry. So there is a kind of a, a dual track of continuities, right? So um, on the one hand, early Christians, um, beginning with Luke, I think, <laughs> um, want to say that Jewish characters um, executed Jesus and that um that that's uh just part and, and that that un non-christian jews who don't follow jesus are guilty of that for kind of throughout time right um so they killed the prophets the same people killed jesus the same people oppose the church currently right um you know um and it kind of like, you know, it engenders lots of um, animus, you can imagine, towards Jewish communities. I mean, like if I'm a Christian and I'm having problems and I think to myself, like, where do those, you know, and I think to myself that I'm like imitating Christ with those problems. And I think, well, what happened to Christ? Like, oh, you know, he was killed by Jews. So it's like, well, 
if I'm imitating Christ, my own problems must come from Jews. So we got to, you know, I don't know, put those people in the ghetto or something like that, mm-hmm. right? You can see how all of this underpins like um, lots of um, of anti-Judaism. I'm, I I, I, I want to get to the pilot part to that uh, in a second, but I, I do want to say that because I, I don't want to miss it because I'm just thinking of it now is that this idea, I'm almost all, I mean, I don't know, you can't say all, but most, the vast majority of Jews today are aware of the fact that Christians have accused them of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of executing Jesus. And this is a direct underpinning of Christian anti-Semitism. It's not like some like minor footnote in Jewish history that we can just say like, oh, okay, you know, whatever, you know, it's like a huge, tr- you know, a huge um, uh, point of um, grief really, uh, for, for Jews. So we can't, you know, Christians can't ignore it. You know, I think one of my books is I just want to sort of kind of call us to lament this fact. Um, and I think that's, um, lamenting bad things in your tradition is is good religious practice. Um, so there's this continuity, but there's also another continuity. There's a continuity of Jews assumed by Christian texts, but there's also another continuity and that is a continuity of Gentile authorities, right? So in um Tertullian, for example, um Pilate becomes a uh, is a Christian uh, Tertullian says that Pilate is a Christian in his conscience, right? <laughs> and not only does he say that Pilate is a Christian, he also says that Pilate wrote a letter to Tiberius um encouraging him to recognize Jesus as a deity. And Emperor Tiberius wanted to recognize Jesus as a deity, but the Roman Senate wouldn't sort of permit it when he brought it before <laughs> the Senate. And to me, this just shows like how much you can, with the passing of time, how open the past becomes hmm. with the passing of time, right? Hmm. So um, so Pilate becomes, a, it, according to Tertullian, Pilate is a Christian, and he's actually the first epistle writer in the hmm. Christian movement. Okay. Um, Tiberius is a Christian. Um, and this is embraced by many later writers from you know um Eusebius um to Doctrina Adai. Okay. Um Tiberius is a, a Christian, Abgar, this other pagan ruler, becomes a Christian. Cla- um Claudius, Emperor Claudius becomes a Christian. Uh, his wife Protonike is a Christian, right? They all become Christians, and they all agree not only that um, Jesus is a divine being who should be followed, but also they all agree that Jews killed him, and that they should um, um, kill all the Jews who have um, who have killed him. Um, and really the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE is kind of seen by later Christians as like the Roman Empire doing what they should have done, which is just taking justice on the Jews who actually executed Jesus. Not that the Jews handed Jesus over to Roman soldiers who executed Jesus. Not no, that Jews act that Jewish actors executed um Jesus. So by portraying like Pilate and Tiberius and Claudius and whoever else as proto-Christian rulers, later Christian authors are saying that there's also a continuity between them and later Christian rulers. So Eusebius would want Constantine to see himself as in continuity with Pilate, 
Tiberius, other early Christian rulers who supported the early Christian movement, who believed in Jesus, right? Um, and who opposed the Jews who um, executed him. And then they used Nero when they said, so it's like, well, why has, why, have, why has the Roman Empire been crucifying, you know, or killing Christians for the past, whatever, 50, 100 years? You know, if you're Constantine thinking that, the answer is because Nero, Nero was the first one. He like went astray from like, the, ori the original is uh, Pilate and Tiberius. They were mm. all in with like Jesus or whatever mm message and then you have nero is the first one who like goes against um the christians and he's just kind of following what the jews were doing you know mm -hmm. um whenever roman um like justin says this whenever roman uh whenever the roman state persecutes christians you know um uh christian writers say well it's because basically like the jews are like whispering in their ear essentially oh, you wow. know yeah. you know um you know it's because they're like they're, the, the, you know, the Jews have been like bad mouthing us to the state mm -hmm. and these like lies and they're like picking it up, you know, from them. So you have these like two lines of continuity, you know, as far as like early Christians want to paint it. You have the Jews who killed the prophets and Jesus and who oppose whatever activity exists in the church, in the community of the writer. And then you have a continuity of Roman rulers. You have Pilate, who was a Christian in his conscience, Tiberius, who was, you know, embraced Jesus's uh, divinity on, on, you know, on through to Abgar, whatever, mm -hmm. um, Claudius, Protonike, Constantine, you just have this sort of like continuous line. It's like, they could feel like that they were, uh, later Christian rulers are going to feel like they're following in the line of like, whatever these initial responses of their secular predecessors. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a, uh, terrible trajectory that all of these um people who were responsible historically um as as the gospels present it uh or i should say as matthew and mark uh, uh present it perhaps that we can maybe agree there uh that uh that that yeah they they get inverted into christian figures and then the, the jews um are just presented um like categorically as not just being responsible for the passion, but actively doing all of the things, yes, like said, all the things, all the things. Uh, can I just, you know. can I just say something about Matthew and Mark really quick? Cause I feel like we've let them off the hook, you know, <laughs> I don't, don't want to feel like Luke. It's just, well, I know where like, you're going with Matthew invented, invented everything, you know, um, all of a sudden, you know, Matthew and Mark both say that, you know, the Jews killed the prophets or whatever. And that does leave them with, it's like, they, but then they go on to say that Roman soldiers executed Jesus. And that does leave them with a kind of odd message there that like Luke kind of clears up, I think. Um, but, you know, they also have, you know, in Mark, which is written sometime after 70 CE, I don't, I don't know, 72, 72, it could be 70. Well, I don't know how late you can go with Mark <laughs> into the 70s, 78, 79. I mean, it starts to get a little tight, you know, um, <laughs> But um yeah, you gotta allow yeah. time for circulation and um yeah, and for Matthew and Matthew and Luke to use it. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, who knows, right? Um it, the you know, the dating of so many New Testament texts is 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 flimsy, as you know. I thought about writing an article one time called I Kiss Dating Goodbye about <laughs> dating New Testament text, but I realized please, that only someone from a New please. Testament background about the age of like 45 would understand. Yeah, who who grew up not just a New Testament background, but grew up in purity yeah. culture. Please yes, you'd write have that. To, you'd have to know. That. You'd have to know about all of that thing, so it would it wouldn't stick, would it? Oh, um, I love that so much. Yeah, but um, 
Yeah, that hasn't worked out well for him in the long term, has it? Um, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so if you, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me, you know, is the the parable of the tenants. Oh, so, right. Right. Yeah. In Mark 12, um, Jesus tells a parable, right, where a, a man, you know, rents his land to tenants and they collect the produce and he sends the slaves to collect the produce. They like beat them and kill others. And then he sends a son, you know, because they'll respect my son. Um, but then they, you know, kill the son, right? Because um, they say this is his heir. Let's let's kill him, you know. And the text in Mark says it, the religious leaders say, well, he, they knew that he told this parable about them. It mm-hmm. kind of pisses them off. Um, but one of the things to notice about that is that is that the um, I I guess the characters in the parable stand for kind of like obvious people, right? Like the beloved son is Jesus, obviously, right? Um, the servants that come before Jesus, if you think are the prophets, right? Um, and the religious leaders are the um, are the tenants. And what happens in the parable? Who kills the beloved son? Is it like, you know, the like the Gentile uh, bodyguards of the tenants or something? No, it's not. The tenants kill the son, right? So already in Mark, so already prior to whenever Mark was written, you have a parable out there accusing Jewish characters of executing Jesus, albeit via a parable, right? And you also have a continuity, right? Because the tenants who kill the beloved son are the same tenants who kill the slaves. And so that message again that you guys killed the prophets, now you've killed Jesus, now you're opposing us etc you know you know it's this timeless jew you know it's right and it's right there in in the text i thought we were only going to go for 15 minutes no 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 i was telling john before this podcast this is my very first podcast i've i've i did another one that's like five minutes long just on luke 23 but i was about to like i was like breathing into a paper bag before i got on this podcast and um i i live in new york city so like my block is like, you know, the League of Nations, you know, I have people, you know, my neighbors are Egyptian, next to them are, these are people, folks are from China and Pakistan. So I have neighbors from Poland. And I was like, okay, I need something, you know. Um, so I ran across the street and they poured me a a large glass of of something, you know, um, yellow colored, you know, and I slopped it. That Maybe I sounded a little bit more off at the beginning of this podcast, but it did calm me right down. You know, I, I don't think I've been, I'm not like batting a hundred in this pod or a thousand in this podcast, but I, I would have been a lot worse without a little help from, you know, whatever this was. You're, you're, you're doing great. You're doing great. And right, um, this has been, this has been a great conversation. And I think uh, as like a final, you know, way to end it. Um, how about we just hear a little bit more about that kind of, uh, theological takeaway that you, you know, you talked about lament. I mean, um, whether or not, whether or not this started with, um, uh, with Luke and whether, you know, regardless of all of that, it is part of the tradition, undoubtedly, like, 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 um, like we've described. So, so what's the takeaway, you know, as a, as a Christian, I mean, you know, you're, you're an Episcopalian, right. And you teach at a Catholic college. Um, I, I, I'm an Episcopalian. I teach at a Franciscan college. It doesn't like to be called a Catholic, you know, the Franciscans are like the flower children of the Catholic church, you know, (laughs) um, and they themselves would say we're Franciscan, not Catholic, even though that doesn't make sense, but, uh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Well, what, what are some theological takeaways that, um, you know, that 
as as people reflect on this Listen, tradition yeah what are some I'm, things still, you'd like to I'm say? still wrestling this with this like everyone else i don't want to people to think that i i have you know all the answers you know yeah i i am a, a deeply christian um and as part of being deeply christian um or as i as i don't want to like compare myself to anybody else as i've grown as a christian um you know i've gone through you know two decades of like wrestling with my faith and maybe it's all just like the second naivety sort of thing you know but i've been able to become comfortable with like really clinging to my faith and being able to like be a candid friend of it you know and kind of criticize it where i think i can and i i you know what i think the text itself encourages you to criticize it you know i i think this every semester when i teach like gospels right i mean like the synoptic problem for example you know like, does Matthew think Mark is some, like, you know, text, divine text that can never be criticized? No, I mean, Matthew thinks that Mark kind of stinks, right? And it's like, and there's like, you know, like, if you think about, like, the text in Mark where the guy comes to Jesus and he says, um, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, why do you call me good? You know, no one's good but the one God. And Matthew's like, yeah, that's really bad. We we have to, that's that's not good. We have to get rid of that, right? So Matthew, of course, moves the adjective good off of teacher and onto the deed. So Matthew's Jesus says, you know, teacher, what good deed must I do, right? I mean, so I think that like, just like seeing how Matthew and Luke treat Mark, like you can just see that the text itself is telling you like, this is not, you know, a finished product, you know? Um, this can be, you know, criticized, you know, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't have, you know, words of life in it, you know? Um, so I, I, I kind of tried to summarize that. I don't know why I'm thinking about like the last lines of the book. Um, I say that, um, we must discover how to lament the human failings within our religious traditions while simultaneously remaining committed to them as paths of life and peace. Learning to criticize and lament some aspects of one's tradition while clinging to others as words from God is the journey of a lifetime. Right. And I, I think that I think that's it. You know, I mean, like you you start with the questions of like the Bible as like a message from God. You say, like, okay, that's fine. And then you read the text and you say, like, well, what does it mean for it to be a message from God? And you encounter how like Matthew treats Mark, for example. And it's like, well, it can't mean that whatever, you know, I I, I thought it was, you know. And so you just keep getting so, and then you come across, you know, like slavery texts or things like this, you know, mm -hmm. what's going on with Luke with you know accusing Jews of executing Jesus, you know, and so. I think we're just always coming back to the Bible with new questions saying like, like, what is it? Right. I think at the very least it's a sacrament, you know, um, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not a theologian, you know, but I understand that like Bart said something like that the Bible becomes the word of God when you encounter God and reading it, something like that, you know, so that that's tends to be how I, I, I think of the text, you know, when I read the text, which I do every day, you know, um, you know, um, you know, I, I feel that I'm a better person for for doing that. I feel that I'm reminded to, I I my I live my life more with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, justice, self control. Right, um, whatever was on that flannel board when I was in third grade. <laughs> okay, um, so I, I I live my life more that way, um, and that is infinitely important to me. Um, that I feel like the reading the text encourages me to 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 be to to 
to extend the kingdom of God to the world, whatever mm -hmm. your doctor father would want me to say. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, 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 so something like that, but I don't think that the Bible is like immune from like criticism. And I, and I think the Bible encourages us to criticize it. Um, and, um, and I don't, I don't think that there's, you know, um, anything particularly wrong with that. I think we should do that in a community through conversations like this. Um, you know, um, I'm not here to say that like the Bible's wrong, you know, or something like that. Like, I was like, I'm just saying like, this is, these are problems that are in the text that I see that I'm bringing up in this book, you know, um, if you want to prove me wrong, you know, definitely read the book. Wouldn't you say that this is a book that every Christian should read? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I did like, I wrote it to, I mean, listen, I, I, I would like, you know, you know, I would like every Christian to, to read the text, you know, I mean, I really directed it towards like, especially like, I, I would really like it if Christian leaders read it, pastors, people in seminary, um, people who teach in like religious institutions, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of saying like, oh, maybe there's a problem here that we should, um, that, that, that we should think about, but I don't think that it means that like God's not communicating with us, like, through the text you know I mean, we like simple answers for everything don't we you know we like everything everybody gets nervous about like slippery slopes you know and, well if we say this is wrong then how do i know anything you know but life's lived on the slippery slopes you got to wear your spikes man <laughs> wear your spikes yeah oh that's 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 right good. that's great that's great well dr edwards thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and hope everybody checks out your new book crucified with fortress Thank you so much, John Anthony Dunn. I hope to see you in, where, where are we at? Regensburg. San, San Antonio. Oh, no, oh, sorry, I, you're not going to SBL? No, I teach on Mondays this semester. I'll see you in oh. San Diego. Okay, so next SBL. Or what about what about uh, SNTS in Australia? I'm not going to Australia. I can't okay. sit on like a 24-hour flight. <laughs> okay, well then I'll see, you, I'll see you in San Diego and then Regensburg. Okay, sounds yes, good. Yes. Sounds San Diego good. and Regensburg. All right, see you, John. Cheers, this was fun.